if you converted dollars to seconds and you said how many years will it take for a trillion seconds to pass, it's 317,097 years, 11 months, and two days. Hello, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg in New York. And I'm Khanna Jaffe-Walt in Seattle. It is Friday, June 19th, and you just heard Georgia Senator Johnny Isaacson really screwing up his numbers. <laughs> right. Our own David Kestebaum noticed this clip when it was on Morning Edition this morning. Isaacson was on the Senate floor trying to illustrate how much time Obama's trillion-dollar health care reform package would represent if each dollar was a second. David, Planet Money's smarty pants, nothing gets by him. He checked his math, and it turns out Isaacson was off by a factor of 10. And he forgot about leap years, which I guess matters when you're counting down to the month, week, and day for maximum effect, theatrical effect. Um, Hana, you never get those details wrong, right? Me? Never. (laughs) I have never made a math mistake in my life, ever. Um, But let's correct Isaacson's mistake right here. Red pen for our Planet Money indicator. It is 31,678 years, 265 days. That is how long it would take to count to one trillion the cost of Obama's health care plan if you're counting a dollar a second. Okay. Now, I think we're done being mathematically righteous, right? Yes. Today on the podcast, we are going to be talking about regulation. It's on everyone's mind. President Obama came out with his big new plan this week. Um, We're going to just take a step back. We're going to look at regulation through history, and we're going to ask some really simple questions like, is there such thing as too many rules, or are more rules always better? Right. And first, though, these aren't new questions. Right, Hannah, you wanted to, you especially wanted to point that out. Yeah, I wanted to take a quick, exciting tour of crisis, despair, redemption, and then crisis again. <laughs> that sounds fun. Is that like a Carnival <laughs> Cruise Lines tour? <laughs> yeah, it's not sounding as fun when I talk about it now, but it will be fun. <laughs> I was thinking this week, President Obama, he comes out with this new plan to fix our regulatory system. And it's so clearly a plan for this crisis. You know, it says, boy, we really screwed up with AIG. Let's change the way we regulate the stuff that brought that company down. Those derivatives um, that you or, heard about. Or, hey, we really let consumer lending get out of hand. Let's create an agency for that. It's very much about here and now. And of course it is, right? We want to fix the problem that got us here, uh, make sure that, that those problems don't happen again. Yeah, but it also means that regulations like always crafted to be in response to our exact situation. We're always doing it in a time of crisis. So let's start. It's 1907, and there's a panic. Hey, uh, the US hold, on, is, hold on one second, honey's about to sing. Look up and smile, my little darling. You're kind of the one to see. <laughs> right, so you were saying, sorry. <laughs> okay, so the, the U.S. is facing a serious economic crisis. Interest rates are soaring in 1907. Banks have major liquidity problems. And people start saying, Hey, shouldn't we have some sort of public administration to help us with these panics? We have them all the time. And so they did something. Yes, they created the Federal Reserve. President Woodrow Wilson, 1913, he signs the Federal Reserve Act and says this. You're not going to hear his voice here. It's historian Andrew Wender Cohen um, reading President Wilson's words. And the control of the system of banking and of issue, which our new laws are to set up, must be public, not private must be vested in the government itself so that the banks may be the instruments, not the masters of business and of individual enterprise and initiative. 
Banks should be the instruments, not the masters. It sounds like sort of a timeless phrase, especially a phrase for our time right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So the Panic of 1907 it gives us the Federal Reserve. And then Alex, we're solid until things fall apart again. Once I built a railroad, made it run, made it race against Oh, wait, can I guess? Can I guess? No, no, too easy, Alex. So we are now in the Great Depression, runs on banks, there's crazy unemployment, things get really bad. Um, So time for a president to add some more regulation, this time FDR. Your government does not intend that the history of the past few years shall be repeated. We do not want and will not have another epidemic of bank failures. Oh, if only that were the case, (laughs) (laughs) right? Um, But anyway, the Great Depression, uh, they got us the FDIC. Yeah, so we got the FDIC. Ordinary people loved that. Their deposits were insured. And the FDIC was part of the Glass-Steagall Act. And that act did this other thing. It said investment banking could not be the same as bank the, the banking of consumers. That, you know, the banking done by regular people had to be separate from the kind of banks that invest heavily in the stock market or speculative banking. So then a lot of time passes uh, until... Life is a mystery. <laughs> wow. <laughs> We made it all the way to my senior year of high school? (laughs) Yes, 1989 and all the way into the early 90s, the savings and loan crisis. So more than 700 thrifts failed during this period. And we added regulation. Of course. So President Bush says the thrift regulator, the one that was in charge of all those failing institutions, man, he really screwed up. He gets rid of that agency and he puts in place a new agency called the Office of Thrift Supervision. The Office of Thrift Supervision. That sounds familiar. Isn't <laughs> that the one? Wait, wait. Okay, so we're still in 1989. Alex, we'll get to that. Okay. We're still in the SNL crisis deep in it. Somebody's got to respond to that. So President Bush, he trashes the one regulator and he puts in place another. And also, starting today, tougher requirements for safe and sound operating practices will begin to take effect. Never again will America allow any insured institution to operate normally if owners lack sufficient tangible capital to protect depositors and tax taxpayers alike. Never again. I feel like that's we've heard, we've heard that almost every single president in every single crisis. So it's a pretty confident statement. Yeah. Well, a- after this, we did get pretty confident. Some might say over- overconfident. I know this is a banking crowd, but you don't have to be stiff. Relax here. Have a good time. <laughs> you know? This, of course, is President Clinton. Yes. And Alex, this was sort of a different kind of financial regulation. It was the opposite, actually. President Clinton's making a little joke about stiff bankers right there, and he is about to sign the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. It's 1999. Right. And this act is sort of deregulation. Exactly. So this act actually reversed the regulation from the 1930s that said investment banks and commercial banks had to operate separately. So it's a different kind of moment. There's not a lot of never again rhetoric here. It's more, look how far we've come. These regulations, they're antiquated. Over the past four years, productivity has increased by a truly remarkable 2.6%. That's about twice the rate of productivity growth the United States experienced in the 1970s and the 1980s. In the last quarter alone, productivity grew at 4.2%. 
This is not just some loose statistic that matters only to the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, and Wall Street economists. It is the key to rising paychecks and greater security and opportunity for ordinary Americans. So, Hannah, a lot of people, including President Obama, point to this moment, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, as being the key sort of to getting us where we are today. Um, Companies merged. They got huge. Of course, other economists argue that it's not that clear. Yeah, but speaking of today. Just dance. Just dance. Excuse me. <laughs> right, uh, here we are. Uh, go, go, right, go, go right ahead, Hannah. Okay, okay. So we're guessing that you've heard President Obama's speech, so we're not going to play it here. Um, and it's definitely, if you want to hear it, it's not as hard to find as trying to dig up audio of Woodrow Wilson. So here we are in crisis number whatever. Mr. Obama, he wants to reshape regulation in the mold of this crisis. So he's calling for tighter regulation of large financial firms. He wants a way for the Federal Reserve to take over enormous companies. He wants a consumer protection agency. And he would like to get rid of the Office of Thrift Supervision. That agency we just heard President Bush talking about that he created 20 years ago. Okay, so Alex, we're caught up to where we are today, and we want to just take a step back and look at regulation as a whole, the idea of regulation. You know, because some people hear it and they think that's a dirty word, and other people, regulation sounds like safety and order. Right, and we wanted to look at this, and so we talked with two people. The first one you're going to hear from is David Moss. He's a professor at Harvard and the author of several books, among them When All Else Fails, Government as the Ultimate Risk Manager, and the forthcoming Government and Markets, toward a new theory of regulation. So clearly he's a guy who's thought a lot about this. And I asked him about the storyline that you hear a lot, that the Great Depression led to regulation, that regulation kept us free from financial crisis and panic for half a century until deregulation undid it all. Deregulation of the kind you heard President Clinton doing earlier in the program. And that is what got us where we are today. How accurate do you think? I mean, I think that's a story that you hear a lot. How accurate do you think it is? How, are there elements of truth to it? Do you think it's, do you think it's too simplistic? I think there's a strong element of, tr- of truth. I would probably uh, uh, put the focus just a little bit differently. Um, mm-hmm. And so just to, you know, you started with the Depression. Let me, let me just step one, one step back from that. You know, if you look before the Depression, um, we used to have crises all the time on a very regular basis uh, from, in fact, from 1792 when George Washington was president up to 1933. We had crises really every 15 or 20 years, sometimes <clears throat> sometimes even more often than that. So the first one was in 1792, then 1797, 1819, uh, 1837, 1857, 1873, 1893 to 96, 1907, 1933. So you get the, the pattern. There's a real drumbeat of crises. It punctuates American history. So that was a real problem. And uh-huh. the, the remarkable thing is that after 1933, the crises stopped. So that's part of the narrative you just told as well. So the crises stop, and they stop for 50 years. Um, right. And in fact, that's by far the longest stretch in the country's history. And so I think the, the longest stretch without a major financial crisis, and it, and it wasn't just without a financial crisis, it was also a period of remarkable financial innovation, um, robust, robust economic growth. So, you know, it's fairly easy to get stability um, without innovation. And it's also quite possible to get innovation without stability, but to get both is a real trick. And I, I think that's what was achieved, um, you know, over that 50 years after 1933. So I think the key thing is it's not just regulation or no regulation. I think what what happened in the 1930s 
from say 1933 to 1940 was really smart uh, smart strategy for regulation. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would put the focus on. It wasn't that that it came out of the mind of any one person. It wasn't proposed as a strategy by the Roosevelt administration. But the strategy was identify the biggest systemic threats, the, the threats that could sink the whole system, and regulate those aggressively. And then exercise a lighter touch, not no regulation, but a lighter regulatory touch elsewhere. And so in 1933, the biggest systemic threat, the threat to the whole system, was in commercial banking. And so, you know, the banks that take deposits and make loans. And so we regulated those really starting in 33, but beyond that, quite aggressively. And then the rest of the financial system, we were exercised, for the most part, a lighter touch. And so what you see is stability in the banking system and innovation, more innovation elsewhere. And that combination turned out to be really very productive. And so I, I, to, to go back to your storyline, I don't think it's just that we deregulated. There may be some things we shouldn't have deregulated, particularly with regard to the SNLs in the 1980s. There were probably some things we shouldn't have quite deregulated as much. I think that, though, as we were in that deregulatory mindset in the 1980s and 1990s, we, um, there were some new regulation that was needed as we started to see the emergence of some new systemic threats we hadn't seen before, and we, we didn't have the inclination to invest in new, in new regulations. Sama says that these new institutions that needed new regulation were these bank-like entities, these big, complex financial institutions, broker-dealers like Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs, um, you know, big insurance companies like AIG, all these new, big, complicated financial institutions, um, they had just taken on a lot more money and a lot more power, and they needed to be regulated. Now, of course, we know all that. And so Moss says that, in many ways, what we do next is fairly straightforward. In my view, the remedy, uh, you know, what, what should we do is, is not so complicated. I think that we should focus our regulatory attention not exclusively on those institutions, but primarily, and, and, or at least largely, and that we need to regulate them a lot more aggressively than we have in the past. And if that means they want to slim down and not be such a large institution anymore, that's, that's great. And if they want to stay large and, and accept the regulation that's, that's uh, put on them, that's great too. And I, I think that, that should be the strategy. And, and what would that be? What would that, that, would, that would be the regulation would be sort of regulate them basically the way that banks are regulated now. You have to have certain capital ratios. You have to... I, I mean, it sounds like what we need to do for the, for the broker-dealers what we did for the banks after the Great Depression. It sounds like it, it, in, a, in, a, in a, sort of in, the, in, the, in its most simplistic formulation. Is, is, in, is that the, true? You have to ask yourself a simple question. If Institution X is so large and so interconnected that its failure would lead to a cascade of losses throughout the economy. Um, if you believe that to be true, then it should be regulated as what I'm calling a systemically significant firm. And if that's not true, if its modest size and so on means that its failure would be unfortunate for those who invest in it, but wouldn't lead to a cascade of losses, then regardless of what type of firm it is, whether it's a broker-dealer, whether it's a hedge fund, whether it's an insurance company, whether it's a bank, we don't need to regulate it quite that way. So that's the differentiation I would make. And once we, once we make that, we need to be pretty tough about it um, going forward. You know, this, this, this being pretty tough about it going forward, this seems to be sort of a key problem with any regulatory system. Yeah, because it's easy to say now when everybody's still reeling from this crisis, let's be tough going forward. But you know, what happens in five years or 10 years when things are good again and all this is just a distant memory. One of the real problems um, uh-huh. in, in dealing with this type of 
very long-run issue, right? So right. crises don't come every year. Right. Thank goodness, right? They, they come, you know, if you're lucky, once every 50 years. If you're unlucky, once every, you know, 10, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. But that means that along the way, regulatory vigilance tends to, to wane. Right. And that's um, the thing that seems like the toughest nut in this whole regulatory question is just sort of like the better, you, the better job you do, the, the, the more it seems like you don't need to be doing your job. Right. Well, and so, the, look, there's no perfect solution to right. that. But I think the best thing that we know is transparency. You know, people like to talk about transparency. I think um, here it's, it's really very important. The more the public knows and is involved in the kind of regulation that you're doing, the more likely it is that the regulator can stay vigilant. And the less likely they are not only to become complacent, but also less likely they are to be captured by those they're trying to regulate. And so, for example, I would say if you're going to have a, um, if you're going to try to identify these, what I'm calling systemically significant firms, and then regulate them more aggressively, you should make a public list. And um, any firm that's on that list, it should be publicly known, it should be on the Internet, always available. And so that if, say, some large firm uh, mysteriously disappeared from the list, people would wonder why, you know, why, we know there's a really huge financial firm, why aren't they on the list? Um, and that would help to maintain a little bit of vigilance. And so I think, you know, Congress should be very clear about how these large firms should be regulated. The regulator is going to have to determine which, which institutions go on the list. But if the list is public as opposed to private, I think it's much more likely. So that's one, much more likely that, that um, the, there'll be public pressure uh, to stay vigilant. Okay. So Alex, what I hear Moss basically saying is, you know, just design this prudent regulatory framework, get the public to keep an eye on it, and maybe that'll keep us out of trouble for a couple decades, or at least it'll lower the risk of us getting into trouble again. But our colleague Adam Davidson talked to George Selgin, an economist at the University of Georgia. Right. And George Selgin worries that getting that perfect mix of prudential regulation with a light touch out of a fractious body like Congress, that can be a big if. And he says if the wrong regulation comes out, it can do more damage than good. People forget, again, uh, how much trouble bad regulations can cause and the role that they play in every crisis, including this one. And they forget that, that the same government bodies that can prevent bad behavior also are capable of encouraging a lot of bad behavior. And that's what's happened this time. So, Hannah, George Selgin has a lot of sort of examples about government bodies encouraging bad behavior and government policies encouraging bad behavior. But one of the ones that he pointed to, and this is a pretty outside of the mainstream idea, but it's an idea you hear a lot. He pointed to the FDIC. And what's interesting is that David Moss also talked to me about the FDIC, but he said that it's a great organization. It sort of should be the model for any new systemic risk regulator that comes out of the Obama proposal. George Selgin says, nah, that the FDIC, with its deposit insurance, actually has caused a lot of bad behavior, and that before the FDIC, banks were actually better behaved. Banks had a long tradition here of holding plenty of capital, at least many of them did, until the advent of deposit insurance. There were banks that advertised their capital aggressively. They also advertised having very low-risk portfolios, and so people who didn't want risk put their money there. When deposit you mean depositors? Depositors. depositors. 
Yes, there were plenty of banks that were, had reputations for being safe and, and had tons of capital, which is a kind of substitute for insurance. Because and to uh, just to explain the situation, um, I remember a, a, a few months ago, actually before the crisis, so a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, I had a little extra money um, and I just I only wanted it in a savings account. And I went online and I found a bunch of Internet banks that had pretty high returns. Mm-hmm. And I all I cared was that they were FDIC insured. I did not right. care. I didn't look into the banks. Um, I found out that the two that I chose were in other countries. I didn't even mm-hmm. know that because mm-hmm. I didn't care. They had, I mean, they had branches in the U.S. They, they were FDIC insured. So I knew I'd get my money back. That's um, right. I didn't have any interest in their risk portfolio or how much capital they had to cover losses. That's it's right. Like, That's how it works with insurance in place. And, uh, and so we have this situation where people literally put more effort into deciding what kind of which brand of consumer electronics to purchase than they put into choosing their bank accounts. With banks, with insurance, oh, just go for the high interest rate. What do you care about the rest? But before 1933, certainly, that wasn't what people did, at least prudent people. They found out which banks had plenty of capital and also which banks had safe portfolios. And banks, by the way, advertised these things so that people could find out about them. And uh, uh, today you can find out. There are publications devoted to telling you which banks are safe or not, but nobody reads them unless they have accounts with more than $250,000 in them, that is, corporate accounts. So uh, consequently, there were plenty of safe banks in the past. Now, what happened, the more government deposit insurance grew in importance, the greater the guarantees became. You watched those capital ratios. They got smaller and smaller and smaller because banks no longer needed capital cushions. The public had a substitute. They had the insurance promises. So what did you care if your bank had capital? What did you care if its assets were safe? We have pursued this policy that has been at best a zero-sum game. More insurance, less private capital, less of the good stuff you want banks to do in the first place so they're not too risky. Now, the the other thing I immediately think of is in in the 20s, from what I've read, uh, there was an awful lot of lying people selling bonds and stocks without at all disclosing what's the the real risk pro- profile of those. Um, if we don't have a strong SEC and a strong um, consumer watchdog function, won't, won't, won't we all be snookered? Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Adam. In fact, if we didn't have the F- SEC, we would, we would have people like Bernie Madoff uh, ripping off people to the tune of many billions of dollars. Oh, no, wait a minute. That happened after we had the SEC, didn't it? Um, no, actually, I'm not sure that the SEC has done any good at all. In fact, I think what the SEC does is to lull people into thinking, oh, whatever is meeting the SEC requirements that's that must be safe surely there can't be any fraud involved or they would have caught it they would have screened it but in fact uh that's not what they do they've got a bunch of lawyers there who hardly know anything about finance and who couldn't spot a pyramid if they were standing you know at, in if they were if they were in Giza they they really have been utterly useless for that purpose although they've been very good at making sure that every security issuer or finance firm has a big fat prospectus with very small print that nobody bothers to read. That essentially is what they do. They keep uh, lawyers employed. So how do I, in in the Selginian world, how do I uh, avoid getting ripped off? I mean, well, uh, let's take uh, another system, the English system, where the prospectuses are required 
uh, but they're very short. You can actually read them and find out something. Uh, and you rely on the, uh, on the uh, reputation of established firms. And if you really, really want to avoid risk, well, you just stick to bonds and stay out of securities. So the, there are ways. But I'm not saying that, uh, that uh, there isn't some grounds for having a disclosure of information and that there shouldn't be strict laws against fraud making fraudulent claims in connection with the selling of stocks. Uh, what I am saying is that anyone who thinks that the uh, SEC and all of the steps that it requires companies go through in order to issue shares and so on is actually making our security system more secure, I think is operating under a delusion. The fact is that despite what it says it does, it provides very little extra protection and can actually mislead people and make them more instead of less gullible about uh, what uh, various financial players are up to. So Alex, it's kind of like, I was just thinking, listening to this, it reminds me of this thing that you told me about seatbelts. Do you remember this? So yeah. you, you were saying like, if you really want people to drive safely and to be safe in cars, everybody would just have a spike in their steering wheel. So instead of wearing seatbelts, we would just know that, you know, if we get in a car accident, that's the end. And that kind of seems like, you know, this is one view that we're hearing here is that what we really need is failure. We need to f be able to fail because the best regulation is reminding people that failure can happen. And, you know, then we will do more to regulate ourselves. Right. That we, we, all, we all need to see that spike pointing at us and then that's going to keep us safe. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. But, th but then there's another view that says, really, that's the best that we can hope for? Like, you know. Every once in a while, somebody gets a spike in their head or, you know, small crises every 10 or 15 years where people learn over and over again about mass delusion and bubble psychology. We can't put a system in place that just simply enforces prudent behavior on everyone. It doesn't seem like it should be that hard. Yeah. And in a way, it just sort of seems like it comes down to how you view the world. Right. Like one side sort of says like, well, the, the, the free market will keep everything in, in order. But then the other side says, but you're talking about this ideal free market that will never exist. And then the free market people say, well, but you're talking about this ideal regulation that never exists either. You're never going to get perfect regulation. So it sort of seems like there's these two competing ideal worldviews sort of talking at each other. Right. So then it, it just seems like what we end up with is this sort of lovely, unhappy medium between these two viewpoints. Exactly. Um, well, I guess that wraps it up for today. Uh, please send your pictures, emails, thoughts, comments to our blog, npr.org slash money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. Oh,